I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 45. This is the un-undisputed, everything I cannot share with you during the two and a half hour go through the throat debate show that is undisputed. Today, I will tell you why the NFL world is now sleeping on my Dallas Cowboys who will beat the Philadelphia Eagles decisively. I will tell you why my debate partner, Shannon Sharp, and I view quarterbacks so differently and why I love Jalen Hurts from the start and Shannon did not. I will answer your questions about my Christmas shopping and my all-time favorite Christmas gift. I will tell you what goes on way, way, way behind the scenes as I watch Dallas Cowboy games. And I will also tell you, in the end, about the very recent afternoon that Ernestine and I spent watching the taping of our favorite TV show, Jeopardy, out here in Los Angeles. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. I'm going to open up with one of your questions. This is from Joel from San Jose, California, who asks... How nervous are you for this weekend's Cowboy game? Maybe a touch of sarcasm in that question from Joel. Joel, not one bit. Bring on the Eagles. Now, as you might or might not remember, about three weeks ago, sitting in this very chair, Speaking into this very same microphone, I told the world no more jinx hijinks when it comes to rooting for my Dallas Cowboys. I, I told you there's no going to be no more of these lucky this jersey or unlucky that jersey. No more got to watch the game on this TV or that TV so I don't get jinxed. No more of this Hazel, that's my little Maltese. 
she's actually very big Maltese, but Hazel, it, she either had to be in my lap or at the, in the bed at my feet or maybe out of the room completely. I, I said at that point three weeks ago, sitting right here, I said no more voodoo or conjuring psycho behavior on my part. The Cowboys, if you might recall, had just come within a two-point conversion of getting tied at home by the Indianapolis Colts on a Sunday night. That was late in the third quarter. Then in the fourth quarter, my Cowboys expo excuse me, exploded on said Colts 33 to nothing in the fourth quarter. And I concluded, that's it. This team is just that good. This team has nuclear firepower and star power on both sides of the ball. So I went all in. I booked it. I guaranteed this year's Dallas Cowboys will advance to the NFC Championship game. That for the first time in 27 long, hard years. Damn the jinxes and the torpedoes. We are going to wreak revenge on those eagles on Christmas Eve. And we are going to win at least two playoff games. At least two playoff games. Whatever is required to get to the conference championship game. Then, of course, the following week after that declaration on my part, it took a 98-yard drive to survive the Houston Texans at Jerry World. And then, as you probably well know all too well, last Sunday at Jacksonville, man, we lost to the Jaguars. We had them dead to rights. With a minute left in the game, we had them dead to rights in overtime. And we blew both opportunities, and we got pick-sixed in overtime and walked off. Hey, it happens all too often to my Cowboys. But I am not backing off. I am not wimping out now. I still believe in this team's firepower and star power on both sides of the ball. I still believe in this year. I still believe that so much good, even great, has happened this season, now completely overshadowed by the bits and pieces of really bad. Now all I hear is, ha, 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 same old cowboys. Bad, bad, bad. Now, believe it or not, my Cowboys have become underrated and underestimated off losing 34 to 31, I'm sorry, 40 to 34 at Jacksonville. And as my Cowboy hating debate partner, Shannon Sharp, always says, the Cowboys will always do Cowboy things. Why? because they're historically cursed? Huh, would you believe that my franchise has won five Super Bowls? And would you believe 
we've had a Captain America named Roger Staubach who invented the Hail Mary pass. Was he cursed? Were Troy, Emmett, Michael, and Jimmy cursed? No, they, they weren't cursed. They should have won five straight Super Bowls if Jerry hadn't fired Jimmy, but that's a whole other story. But did those Cowboys back in the 90s suffer from Jerry's Law, what can go wrong will go wrong? No. Jerry actually won a Super Bowl without Jimmy with Barry Switzer as the head coach. Now, I love Barry Switzer. I know him very well, but he had coached exactly zero downs of pro football and did manage to win a Super Bowl for Jerry Jones and for my Dallas Cowboys. Was he cursed? No, he wasn't cursed at all. So Cowboys do Cowboy think Why? When? How? Where did that start? It, it's figments of Shannon and everybody else Cowboy-hating imagination. There's just absolutely no reason why these cowboys today should do cowboy things. So I am not folding the tent that I pitched three weeks ago. And yes, I'll admit I pitched a fit at the end of the Jacksonville game. And I will admit, I'll admit I fell off the anti-jinx bandwagon, at least late in that game, when I fished my white Dak jersey out of the footlocker in which it rests with all my other jerseys. I fished it out, desperate. I could see what was coming. I donned my lucky, quote-unquote, Dak jersey, and I guess that jinxed Dak. I don't know. So no more lucky jerseys for me the rest of the year. I promise you. I vow to you. I will vow this right now. By the end of the Eagles game, I'll be singing joy to the world on Christmas Eve, not blue Christmas on Christmas Eve. I want you to think about a few things with me and for me. The Dallas Cowboys now lead the NFL in takeaways, taking the ball away on defense with 26. But who's counting? I guess only me. The Dallas Cowboys are number two to Philadelphia in the all-important turnover differential stat. They're plus nine to Philly's plus 12, but still second best in the NFL is pretty great. The Dallas Cowboys now have the NFL's number three scoring offense. They're fifth overall in third down conversions. They're seventh in rushing second rushing touchdowns, that'll work, that'll work, and that'll work. And believe it or not, my Dallas Cowboys, as quiet as they have been in the defensive line of late, are still second in the NFL in sacks. To Philadelphia, it's 49 to 55, but still second in the NFL. They're third on defense in passing yards allowed. It's pretty great. And Pro Football Focus does rank them as the 10th best defense, and given how they played at Jacksonville, I'm going to cling to that. I, I'm going to hug that. I, I'm going to savor that. All of that adds up to deep playoff run for the team that everybody wrote off after Jacksonville. 
Just think about what would happen over the first 14 Dallas Cowboy games. Think, think about all the awesome that just got lost with the Jacksonville loss. Let me take you on a very quick trip down memory lane through what just happened this football season. I want you to think about what happened this year to this team that now looks overmatched. I'll give you this, the opener at home against the Bucks was not pretty. The Bucks are now six and eight. But I want you to show me this year a debacle, an eyesore, a, a blowout, a really, really bad sign of a game because you can't. I'll take you back quickly to a, a couple. Remember the 28th season, I'm sorry, 2018 season after the Dallas Cowboys had acquired Amari uh, Cooper? Amari Cooper comes on and Dak takes off. Amari made Dak a lot of money that year. They went from three and five to on their way to the playoffs. But remember what happened late in that year, December 16th of that year? This is the 2018 season. They go to Indianapolis when they were riding highest and they got knocked on their tails, their golden tails. It was 23 to nothing Indy. 23 to nothing? It's just a bad sign. That team did go on to win a home playoff game over Russell Wilson and Seattle. That was Dak's one and only playoff win. But then they came out here to LA and they got knocked on their golden tails again because they got run off, blown off the field by the Rams at the Coliseum. Remember that. 23 to nothing was a bad sign. Last year, a little earlier in the year, it was in November, was an even worse sign. Remember what happened after Cooper Rush had won his first start as a Dallas Cowboy in place of Dak at Minnesota on a Sunday night? Dak came back, and there he went south. Remember what happened? Denver came to Jerry World, and it was 30 to nothing Denver with four minutes left in the game. Dak scored a couple of empty calorie, meaningless late touchdowns with two two-point conversions. Final score was 30 to 16. Very misleading. It was 30 to nothing with four minutes left in the game. Has that happened one time this year to the Dallas Cowboys? No. The losses, except for the first one, you can say that, that Tampa dominated, but it was the GOAT. It was a Bucks defense that was still flying pretty high because it was still pretty healthy at that point. And I'll write that one off. It wasn't an embarrassment, but clearly Dallas was the inferior team that day. But then you know what started to happen. Cooper Rush happened. Cooper Rush beat the Cincinnati Bengals, who, for my money, are vying right now to be the best team in all of pro football. I picked the Bengals before the year to get back to the Super Bowl to win the AFC. They look like the best team in the AFC right now. But that night, Cooper Rush gave them their second straight loss to open the season. Cooper Rush went 19 of 31 for 235, a touchdown and no interceptions. Remember what he did with 57 seconds left? Cooper Rush against that Cincinnati defense that is so hot right now. Did a number on Brady 
at Brady the other day in the third quarter when he came completely unraveled. Cooper Rush, in the last minute of the game against Cincinnati, went eight yards to CD and then 12 to Noah and then 10 more to CD, 50-yard field goal, ball game 20 to 17 Dallas. Wow. Joe Burrow that night was sacked six times. And all of a sudden I started to say, wait a second, six times? Jamar Chase that night was held to five catches for only 59 yards. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this defense is pretty great. I said before the year, my team will go as far as Micah, as in my oh Micah 11 from heaven, and the Marauders, as I called them, will carry this team. And then Cooper Rush goes to the Giants. And they fall behind 13-7 to mid-third quarter, thanks to a 46-yard run by Saquon. But here came Cooper Rush again. Two long drives back-to-back to re-seize the lead. In those two drives, Cooper Rush at Giants on Monday night went 12 of 13 for 129 yards. Wow, interesting. 75 and 9 plays, 89 and 11 plays, and all of a sudden Dallas is up 20 to 13 and did not look back as Daniel Jones went down five times. Here comes Washington. We've seen Washington take shape, take off. Washington's a talented football team. Cooper Rush did a number on Washington at Jerry World. Had a high QBR of 79 that day to only 24 for the aforementioned Carson Wentz. But Carson Wentz went down a couple of more times, and I'm thinking, my pass rush does numbers on opposing quarterbacks. And out we went to the Rams, who were still the Rams at that point. Cooper Rush didn't need to do much in that game because Matt Stafford went down five more times. Tony Pollard emerged. Zeke continued to emerge in what's really a contract year, a do-or-die year for him. And it was 22-10 to 10 Dallas, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, Cooper Rush is looking pretty great to me. Then came at Philly. Cooper Rush threw one ball that got tipped up in the air and intercepted. 50-50, threw another ball that big play Slay put in his back pocket. Bad idea. But then here came Cooper Rush, down 20 to nothing. He outscores Philadelphia 17-0 over the next quarter and a half. Actually ended the game 17-6. And I look up and it's 20-17 Philadelphia early in the fourth quarter. And there went Jalen Hurts on a long drive, three straight third downs he converted. Then he hit his best buddy, A.J., for 22, and Devontae for seven more touchdown. And that basically was that, 26-17 Philadelphia. But we did hang in. And as I reflect back, it's weird to me how the defense played so much better for Cooper Rush than it has for Dak Prescott. Maybe it's because it relaxes for Dak because it thinks Dak will just figure out how to put up 30 or maybe 40, which he is certainly capable of doing. Man, Cooper Rush, except for that one throw to big play Slay, was so careful with the football. I miss how careful he was. I miss how well he operated the Dallas Cowboy offense, how efficiently and effectively 
effectively and carefully he operated the Dallas Cowboy offense. So here came Dak back in the saddle, Detroit. Detroit's explosive offensively. Early in the fourth quarter, Detroit's first and goal at the one, going in with Jamal Williams, who leads the NFL in rushing touchdowns. All he's got to do is tote the rock one yard for yet another to give Detroit a 13-10 lead, and kaboom! Demarcus Lawrence stopped him cold in the hole, and he coughed up the football. Cowboys wound up winning the second half 21 to nothing. The fourth quarter, 14 to nothing. Detroit could not score in the second half. Explosive Detroit, as we've seen in recent weeks. Five times, Jared Goff bit the dust that day, sacked. Then here came Chicago. Chicago's dangerous, obviously, on offense and Tony Pollard exploded on the Bears. Remember this? Three big touchdown runs, 18-7, and then 54 was the showstopper and the case closer. Tony Pollard emerged that day, and yet even Micah, remember he picked up the fumble and returned it for a touchdown of 36 yards. So even he got in on the offensive side that day with that 36-yard return. And the Cowboys won 49-29. to That's firepower, nuclear. By week followed by at Green Bay. And I know what the outcome was, but I also know that going into the fourth quarter, early in the fourth quarter, we led that game 28-14. to That is firepower. 28 to 14. CD's second touchdown catch from 35 yards out made it 28 to 14. I saw a team that, that had Super Bowl written all over it that day until late in that game when Aaron Bleepin' Rodgers turned back into Dracula, who sucks the blood out of my Cowboys every time he plays them. And he did it again that day. Fourth quarter, he throws for 102 yards, seven of nine. You know what happened. Overtime, we win the coin toss. Here goes Tony Pollard. Boom, 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 boom. We get a holding call that sets back a big run. We wind up with a fourth and three. With a 53-yard field goal sitting in our laps. And please drop the mic. McCarthy decides, no. I'm going to let Dak throw for it. And it's some bizarre play that completely self-destructs, and he winds up having to try to flip it desperately to Tony Pollard in the flat. Goes nowhere incomplete. 53-yard field goal for Thunderfoot Brett Maher. Remember, the Rams kicker the other night, Matt Gay, on Monday Night Football in the cold. It wasn't that cold the day Dallas played up there. Matt Gay made a 55-yarder. If you make this, you're in control of this game. But no, no, not McCarthy. Not that day. And then at Minnesota happened. You realize we beat the Vikings 40-3 to that day? 40-3. to Dak was sensational, QBR of 94, scale 0 to 100. Kirk Cousins got annihilated by the pass rush. 
Tony Pollard had 21 total touches for 189 yards that day. Whew, 40 to three. I mean, that had Super Bowl written all over it. And then the Giants on Thanksgiving. Yep, they led at halftime. Was it 13 to seven? And here we came in the second half. We won the second half 21 to seven because we won the third quarter 14 to nothing. We held Saquon to 11 carries for 39 yards. Zeke had a big day, 16 for 92. Tony Pollard had a pretty big day, 18 for another 60. CD caught six for 106. Star power everywhere. Giants were hot at that point, playing at a high level, still are. Nope, not this time, not on this Thanksgiving. And I mentioned the Indy game. They almost tied it at 21 to 21 all, it was 21-19 at that point. Matt Ryan winds up turning it over five times, five times, three picks and two lost fumbles. Tony Pollard, sensational. Zeke, very good. 33 to nothing in the fourth quarter. And I made my excuse me, proclamation sitting right here in this seat. And then Houston happened, and it required the 98-yard drive. But Dallas did win the fourth quarter 10 to nothing. When we had to, we did. And I thought, okay, surely they'll go to Jacksonville and take care of business. And they tried. Are we there yet? You guys going to quit now? No. We're up 21 to 7, 27 to 10. Are we there yet? No, not, not yet. You guys going to quit now? No, we're not going to quit. Jacksonville is talented. Jacksonville is hot. Jacksonville had just done a number on Tennessee at Tennessee. But we had our opportunities. You know what happened. Trevor Lawrence got stripped. Minute left in the game, 128. We've got the ball. All we got to do is make one first down. We win the game. Zeke minus three. I don't know what the play call was. It, Ridiculous. Tony Pollard does a big looping around, sort of end-around play. Got three back, but now it's third and ten. And instead of running the ball and forcing Jacksonville to use its third timeout, we don't do that. Please drop the mic, McCarthy. It's a deep throw to Noah Brown. I don't know why. Back shoulder throw that was thrown so far out of bounds. He had no shot. And, of course, that allowed... Jacksonville, one timeout in its back pocket, which they used to secure a 48-yard field goal in overtime. But my defense held them because they won the overtime toss, and we, we had them again, and Tony Pollard goes for 21 on first down. He's, he's got star written all over him. He, he's still being underestimated. And then he goes for six, but then he went for none, and all of a sudden it's third and fourth to 47, and Dak actually made – a very good throw that hit Noah Brown right in the hands, unfortunately, and the ball pops up and it's just not meant to be. It was just exactly the worst place at the worst time and it gets snatched and it gets pick sixed and we lost to a team that obviously we should have beaten, although that team at home is very dangerous. 
So obviously, I do not love it that my team gave up overall, and including overtime, 503 yards. I don't love it that we gave up 192 rushing yards to Jacksonville. I don't love it that Jacksonville went 8 of 12 on third down. But remember, Dallas went 9 of 16 on third down. Remember, Dak had a QBR of 72 and outplayed Trevor Lawrence, who had a QBR of 60 in that game. I'm taking those numbers to my bank. But look, I'll be the first to admit that my team has one glaring weakness that glares almost as bad as LeBron's late game, close game, free throw shooting. My Dallas Cowboys do allow 133 rush yards per game, which ranks 24th in the NFL. The Eagles are fourth in running the football, averaging 159 a game. You can start do, doing the math. Yet, in the game at Philly, the Eagles did not run us completely off the field. They did wind up with 136, but that was fairly significantly below their average of 159. I'll take that to my bank for this Christmas Eve's game. Do I hate it that our leading tackler, Leighton Vander Esch, probably won't play? Suffered a pinched nerve. He's had all kinds of neck issues. You bet. I despise it. I also despise that our second and third best cornerbacks, Anthony Brown, Jordan Lewis, lost for the season. Sure, I, I, I hate it. Our second rounder, Kelvin Joseph, has proven to be yet another troubled Cowboy draft pick who can be big trouble on the field. He got yanked late in the Jacksonville game for giving up that 59-yard bomb, excuse me, bomb on the double move to Zay Jones. Kelvin raps under the name of Boss Man Fat, but maybe he should change his rap name, rap handle, to Achilles Heel. He may prove to be just that. Still, we have a Pro Bowl cornerback in Trevon Diggs. We have a three-headed monster at safety. We have a cavalcade of pass rushers led by 11 from heaven, who is still, even though he's been quiet for a few weeks, he's still better than anybody on defense for those Eagles. So Mike has been sort of quietly mortal, if you will, over the last couple of games. But it's time for him to walk his talk, strut his stuff, take over in the biggest game of the year, and he will. You can book that. Micah will drop the mic on the Eagles, and then he will lure the boom. I've been saying for a month on Undisputed that my Cowboys have been pointing to this game since the Cooper Rush game back in Philadelphia. The Cowboys have unfortunately been looking ahead to the Eagles since at Eagles. 
yep, they've been playing a dangerous game. I admit it, and it finally caught up with them at Jacksonville. Okay. So now they just, pardon my language, pissed away any chance of catching the Eagles and winning the division. But they still have a glorious opportunity on Christmas Eve to relaunch this season at the expense of the NFL's best team, the Philadelphia Eagles. So I hear people say, oh, that Cowboy loss at Jacksonville took a lot of the luster off the Eagle-Cowboy game, which, by the way, you can see at 425 Eastern on Fox on Saturday. And yet, to that lament, I say, no, 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 no. For the Cowboys, this game actually gained so much luster that you're going to need sunglasses to watch it. Now, I will admit, this game is a psychological do or die for Dallas. Lose to Philly, and I believe my Cowboys will lose out and be lost. Obviously, thanks to the Giants stealing that game on Sunday night at Washington, the Cowboys did back into a playoff berth. But now they're in danger of plunging into the playoffs and drowning in the first round of the playoffs because if they do lose to the Eagles, they have to try to pick themselves up off the mat in time for a Thursday night game at Tennessee. I don't love that. Followed by the final regular season game at Washington, our arch rival still fighting obviously for a playoff spot. Look, if the Cowboys somehow manage to lose out to lose the last four games, they will lose that first playoff game. You can also book that. Tom Landry always preached in the days I covered him that the eventual Super Bowl winner must streak into the playoffs. But losing the last four would be streaking all right, as in running around without any clothes on, exposed. No, the Cowboys have to beat the Eagles, and they need to do so convincingly, and they are completely capable. I believe they have been focusing on saving up for this game to expend all their energy, all their talent, all their firepower on Philly. I believe they will explode on the Eagles. Tony Pollard is a star. CD is a star. Trevon Diggs is a star. Zach Martin, Tyron Smith, now back at right tackle, have been stars, as you know. We're talking about first ballot Hall of Famers. Micah Parsons is a super star. I have a punter and a kicker who are thunder-footed game changers, Pro Bowl quality. I'll admit it, I, I still believe that Cooper Rush had a little better feel for playing quarterback than Dak Prescott has ever had. Dak all too often makes big mistakes at big moments, tumultuous turnovers. 
snake-bitten, head-scratching decisions and throws that too often blow up in all of our faces late in games. But when Dak is right, he is way righter than Cooper Rush. Cooper Rush can beat you with 20. Dak can beat you with 40. I believe Dak and company will hang 32 on the Eagles. No matter who's at quarterback for the Eagles, the Cowboys' defense will go sack attack. The Cowboys will hold the Eagles to 17. The Cowboys will rise above their head coach, who mostly has stayed out of the way this year, and above their owner-operator, Jerry Jones, who mostly has stayed out of the way this year. And the final score on Christmas Eve will be 32-17 to 17 in favor of my Dallas Cowboys. NFC Championship game, here we come. Jinxes be damned. Merry Christmas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another question from Greg from Lake Forest, Illinois, home of the Chicago Bears. Do you take care of your Christmas shopping at the last minute? Greg, absolutely. I do everything in my life last minute from my newspaper writing, column days, radio shows, TV shows. My entire life has been on deadline. I take it one hour at a time and I furiously focus on the next task as the clock ticks. I cram every morning on the fly for undisputed as if it's a, a final exam that I used to cram for back in the day at Vanderbilt University. And when undisputed is this Friday, I will all but run to my dressing room. I will change quickly back into my 4 a.m. casual clothes that I wore into the Fox studio and I will attack my Christmas gift list. More and more now, I send e-gift cards to various department stores or websites that fit the friend or the coworker. But my wife, Ernestine, of course, is different. Our first couple of years together, I did attempt to surprise her for her birthday and for Christmas. And I'm pretty sure I missed way more than I hit. Of course, as my late mother used to say, it's the thought that counts. Uh, not when you spend a whole lot of money on something she doesn't really like and would never wear. 
that puts insane pressure on her to say to me on Christmas morning, oh, this is amazing, you shouldn't have, when she's really thinking you shouldn't have because there is no way I would ever wear this out of this house. So, as unromantic as this might sound, now I just say to Ernestine, what do you want for Christmas? And sometimes we even go together to the store to pick it out and if necessary, try it on and make it completely, utterly right. Yes, it takes the surprise out of it, but it makes the success rate 1,000%. Now, she will still mostly surprise me but she is far better at scoring with gifts for me than vice versa. And also, by the way, we do have a Christmas tradition and a birthday tradition of buying each other cards that we, we personally inscribe with our deepest feelings for each other. This can be three or four cards from each of us, sometimes on her part, five or six cards. Hard to compete with this. They can be funny cards or romantic cards or just very deep personal cards inscribed personally each and every one. This means far more to, to both of us than any gift we've ever bought for each other. So allow me to say, Merry Christmas, Ernestine. I love you very much. And, oh, sorry, our little Maltese Hazel. She can't stand it if I speak only to Ernestine without professing my undying love for her, Hazel. So, Merry Christmas to you, Hazel. I love you too, girl. Next question. Warren from Tacoma asks, what is the best Christmas gift you've ever received? Interesting question. I believe it was the present I received when I was all of 11 years of age, growing up back in Oklahoma City. Quick backstory. The summer before that Christmas, when I was still 10, didn't turn 11 until December 4th, but when I was still 10, I worked my tail off all summer at my father's little hole-in-the-wall barbecue joint. I don't know what I made, like, I think I made like a quarter an hour. I don't know. But I saved up my money because I wanted to go spend a week at a boys' camp called Eagle Lake up in the Rockies outside of Colorado Springs. I went up taking the bus all the way from Oklahoma City to Colorado Springs for that week-long camp in which we lived in, in what were actually teepees, giant teepees, tents, I guess you could call them, but they, they were actually teepees. And each day you could participate, you could choose to, to actually sort of go to school to learn different activities, different sports. And then they had a, an Olympics on the final day of camp, lots of competition. The ages at the camp ranged from 10, so I was the youngest, to 16. And so 
That week I took archery because I was intrigued with archery, bows and arrows. And again, I was the youngest in the class. And there were a couple of 16-year-olds who were archery a marksman. I was blown away, stunned by their talent because they had been shooting bows and arrows for a long time before this camp. So come Olympics Day, my TP, as fate would have it, had no older kids who actually wanted to compete in archery. So everybody turned to me because they knew that was my thing that week and said, hey, you, you try. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> against those guys, I got no shot. Everybody said, ah, just give it your best shot because I was the only shot we had. And did I ever give it my best shot? That day, I, I promise you, I went into a zone. I'm not sure I ever achieved in baseball or basketball or golf. I don't know what got into me, but I was at total peace up in the Rocky Mountains. The target looked huge to me. And I started effortlessly pulling those arrows back to my chin and holding it for a second and just letting it fly. It, it was like magic. I watched the arrows move in slow motion, stick in the bullseye of the targets. Maybe there were 10 targets across, so we were all competing at the same time. That day, believe it or not, at age 10, I won the bronze for my teepee, came in third. And when I got back, my entire teepee, I don't know, there were probably maybe 20 kids in the teepee, gave me a standing ovation. I was just blown away. I still, to this day, couldn't figure out exactly what got into me that day. But all of a sudden, I started thinking, I must be a cross between Robin Hood and Geronimo. And I wanted to pursue archery. So for Christmas, a few months later, and I didn't even think I'd get this, but I did ask my mom, could you please try to find me one of those big round straw stuffed archery targets for the backyard? And she was like, where am I going to get that? My family wasn't that big on Christmas. But I guess she dispatched my crazy father to go find one on Christmas Eve. That's all I can figure out. I did work that late shift that night on Christmas Eve because I was off from school with my father at that barbecue joint on the south side of Oklahoma City. And as we rode home in, he, he drove a panel truck that he used for catering sometimes. We're driving home, maybe halfway. And all of a sudden, we, he, we, we never spoke much to each other, didn't really like each other. But I'm just 11, so I can't drive back and forth to the barbecue joint. But all of a sudden, he points into the back, into the dark in the back of the panel truck. He says, there's your Christmas present. I turn around, I look, and right there was an archery target, big as life, sitting in the dark, uncovered, 
the back of the panel truck. I hadn't turned around to look at it. And obviously I'm thinking, great, you just killed the surprise. Would I not have been happy to get up on Christmas morning and see that under the tree and now he had killed the surprise. But that, ladies and gentlemen, was my weird, creepy, crazy father, who by that point was about halfway through a giant paper cup of vodka and Coke. The punchline of this story is that Ernestine would probably tell you that when it comes to Christmas presents, I probably have a lot of my father in me. Allow me a quick aside. Allow me as a cowboy fan to just take a moment of your time to recognize and honor the 14 game achievement of Jalen Hurts, the Philadelphia Eagles quarterback. I admire this young man so much because of his intangibles, his work ethic, his resilience, his scrap, his fight, his football backbone, his leadership, his command of the position, his big playmaking, in his supreme will. The, the day during the draft that the Eagles stole him in the second round, I immediately tweeted, Jalen Hurts will be better than Carson Wentz, who was always Shannon's guy. Walk it to him Wentz, as Shannon always called Carson Wentz. This has often happened on Undisputed. When it comes to quarterbacks, Shannon is far more impressed with the tangibles, the supreme talent. Carson Wentz has supreme talent, measurable talent, combine talent. What is he, 6'5", 240, huge arm, measurable talent. Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Aaron Rodgers, these have all been Shannon's guys. And I honor that because, hey, <laughs> Shannon caught footballs from John Elway, gifted as they come. And I don't sneeze at talent. I love watching John Elway and Marino and Favre and Bradshaw and Staubach. I could go on and on. Talent can prevail, obviously, at that position. But to me, quarterback is the most mystical position in all of sports. It's the hardest to play and by far the most valuable position in sports, even more so than the pitcher in baseball, because the quarterback is starting and finishing every game as long as he can stay upright. But dominating at quarterback doesn't always require supreme talent because that position can be played with the mind and the will as well as the arm and the legs. That's why Tom Brady's won six Super Bowls 
with game-winning drives in the fourth quarter overtime. That's why he won a seventh during a pandemic for the losingest franchise in all of sports, the Suckineers, turned him from seven and nine into a Super Bowl champion. Tom Brady has turned quarterback into to an art form. He's got a nice arm, but it's certainly not John Elway's. But Brady's ability under fire, late in games, to speed read with 300 pounders trying to hurt him, flying around him, making again and again and again the perfect decision with the perfectly catchable throw under pressure where one mistake ends the game. And we watched him against his arch nemesis, the Saints, two long touchdown drives late in the game to win it. One mistake ends the game and you lose. That's Brady. That's Brady-esque. That's what he's done his whole career. Jalen Hurts has figured out how to play quarterback. Doesn't have the greatest arm, didn't have the greatest mechanics, but he came out here to see my friend Tom House, who operates out of Southern Cal, USC. Brady's gone to him, all the greats have gone to him, and Jalen figured out the right way to throw a football, and he has improved dramatically as much as any quarterback I've ever seen. He worked at it and achieved at the highest level, at an MVP level. He is the driving force of that team because he's made of the right stuff. He'll beat you with his head and his heart, and now his arm and his legs. He could always beat you with his legs, but not always with his arm. That, that's why I'm so in awe of what Jalen Hurts has achieved this year. I love Tim Tebow only because he could beat you with his will. Late in games, he willed balls to the right places. In that 2011 run, Tim Tebow had the NFL's best QBR in the final five minutes of all those games that he won, all those games that he played. As his team went from one and four to a division title and a home playoff win over the Pittsburgh Steelers. Cooper Rush. Tony Romo said the other day on CBS, Cooper Rush is going to get a big contract to go be somebody's starting quarterback. Does he have Dak's arm? No. Dak's legs? No. Dak's talent? Not, no, not really. He can speed read, find the most open receiver, and deliver the pass on time with anticipation to the perfect spot to be caught. He's unflappable, he's unsinkable, and he's playing quarterback at a supremely high level with obviously not John Elway's ability. I, I do appreciate the nuances in ways Shannon doesn't. The art, the overachievers who can command the position of quarterback in different ways. And in the end, my view of quarterbacks and Shannon's view of quarterbacks have detonated the greatest debates we've had 
on undisputed. Another quick question from you, from Dan from New York. If a camera was on you as you watched cowboy games, what would we be seeing? Hmm. Dan, if there were a camera in my man cave as I watched, let us say, this Cowboys-Eagles game, you would see a whole lot of uninteresting nothing. I am laser focused during Cowboy games. I am watching the game extremely intently as well as watching the box score. And I am frantically and furiously live tweeting as you probably know. Wow, that's scintillating. That's compelling. That's must see. No, no, it's must not see. By the way, my little Maltese Hazel always sleeps in her bed at my feet. And occasionally I do say to her, Hazel, we're losing. Or Hazel, this is actually going a little better than I expected. And she will open one eye, have no reaction to what I'm saying, and go right back to sleep. But yes, I will admit this. Occasionally, only occasionally, I do jolt Hazel out of her slumbers by throwing a fit. That's if, say, Dak gets picked sixth in overtime at Jacksonville. I can be prone to throw something within reach at the wall. I learned a long time ago, not at the TV, not worth it, too expensive. I grew out of that. And I must admit, I am prone to screaming words I am not proud of screaming. Words that I would never even speak in everyday conversation, home or away. I just don't use these kind of words except when this happens. I'm talking about words that begin with maybe F. I scream those words because they are cathartic, because they allow me to release my pent-up anger and torment out of my body, out into the universe, and out of my life. Remember, when I scream said words, I am alone in my quote-unquote man cave with only Hazel because Ernestine learned a long time ago there's no way to watch cowboy games with me. She now refuses because of said fits. So, Dan from New York, the truth is, maybe watching me lose my cool and then my mind would be worth the price of having to watch all that boring typing and tweeting. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Final topic. I have mentioned before on this show that Ernestine and I are big Jeopardy fans. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. But we watch, we tape all five and watch all five every Friday night and or maybe a couple on Saturday night, depending on what's going on with games on Friday night, such as LeBron games. We've been doing this for 17 years that we've been together. So recently when a friend offered us tickets to go to a Jeopardy taping here in Los Angeles. I mentioned to Ernestine that, hey, maybe we should bucket list this while while we're still living here 15 minutes from the Sony studios down in Culver City, just south of us, where they do tape Jeopardy. Maybe we should just go. That's when Ernestine decided to call a Jeopardy producer that she knows and quote-unquote drop a hint that we wanted to attend a taping. And yeah, he said, they would love to have me and to have us. And yeah, I big time. And I got valet parking. And I got VIP treatment. I got front row seats, the whole nine. This was last Friday afternoon. I was... I admit, surprised and honored that Ken Jennings knew who I was. And if you don't know Ken Jennings, he's simply the greatest Jeopardy champ ever, and he has now replaced the late greatest host ever, Alex Trebek, as the new host of Jeopardy. So during a break in the taping, Ken Jennings actually introduced me to the studio audience. I I don't know. I'm having a hard time counting exactly. I mean, maybe there were 200 of us in there. Again, we were down in the front row. And usually when I get introduced in those settings, I get booed by about half the people, but nobody at Jeopardy booed me. I don't know. Maybe they didn't know who I was, but I did get a nice ovation. Then Ken Jennings had some fun with me in front of the audience, saying something like, Hey, Skip, if if I make a mistake today, will you get mad at me? Back and forth it went, but I did yell back from my seat, You never. He is something, Ken Jennings. He was in the process of taping six straight half-hour Jeopardies in the same day. It is mind-blowing what he had to process in his rare mind through that day. I have no idea how he did it, but he did it. We watched. Didn't see all six. We saw a couple later in the day, in the afternoon. He was amazing, but we were amazed at at how far back the audience sits from the contestants. If you've ever seen the show, it just feels like the audience is right there, pretty much right on top of the contestants. Not the case at all. The seats are far back from the contestants to the point that even in the front row, we couldn't really make out their expressions 
because they answered the questions, which you have to obviously answer with a question. We had to watch the monitors. That's how far back the, the audience seats were. We were very surprised by that. I think this was the first time they'd had fans inside for the show since the pandemic. And by the way, we were required to wear masks and present proof of vaccination. That's LA for you. But the next thing that stunned me was what a huge Hollywood production Jeopardy is. Such a huge bustling crew everywhere. A row of judges across in front of us, six of them. It actually made me very proud of what Shannon and I and our staff pull off every day at the Fox movie lot where I sit right now and where we tape, I'm sorry, where we are live on Undisputed. That's my point. So when we do Undisputed live, we found during the pandemic that we don't need that many camera operators. Now we're down to just one on the floor in our studio, which is on the second floor of the building I sit in right now. We have one audio tech, one audio person down on the floor. We have one stage manager down on the floor. We have eight people up in our control room on the fifth floor, floor I'm on right now. And then in our tape room, we have three or four others of our crack staff who put together and cut the, the videos that we often use on Undisputed. But the point is, my point to you is, we are live while Jeopardy is being taped. The two episodes that we watched won't air until March. So if there's a production mistake or a host mistake, whatever, Jeopardy just stops down, does it again. Ken Jennings can reread, redo clues if necessary. So what you see at home is obviously the final edited perfect version of Jeopardy. And what you see on Undisputed, trust me, it is raw, real, live TV. If we mess up, we mess up and it is gone. We do not rehearse. I know the topics. I know kind of the gist of Shannon's positions just the gist, little more than that. So where it's about to go, nobody knows, including me. We are competing hard live. We're trying to back each other into a corner, trying to win the debate. It is completely extemporaneous and completely unscripted. That's why I jump out of my bed every morning out here in L.A. at 2 a.m. I live for live. I thrive on the immediacy of undisputed, the now, never. The urgency, the electricity, the knowing this is it or else. Back in the day when I was at ESPN, Stephen A. and I, once upon a time, sat in for a couple of weeks for Michael Wilbon, Tony Kornheiser on Pardon the Interruption, which was taped, I think still is taped in Washington, D.C. 
the actual content on that show is only what 22 or 23 minutes around the commercials yeah it's live to tape so if the director at that point eric ride home if he didn't love the way a segment unfolded or if we messed up we just do it again you always had a safety net and i always hated it took some of the edge off for me anyway knowing that this take might not be the one and only take i need the pressure of live my first show on espn cold pizza was live first take was live for six years and three months shannon and i on undisputed have been very live obviously when the Jeopardy contestants begin to actually compete on the show, well, it might as well be live because you, nothing is scripted, they're, they're nothing staged. They, they, are, they are forced to answer on the fly instantly and it's etched in stone. But a, a contestant might occasionally have to repeat an answer that's already etched in stone just so Ken Jennings can follow that with maybe a different transition into a commercial break. But for the contestants, man, even from a little bit of a distance, you can feel the mounting pressure all the way over in the front row. Speaking of that pressure, sitting to my left in the front row was the father and to his left, the mother of the middle of the three contestants. They were from Buffalo, salt of the earth, backbone of America, people from Buffalo, New York. Their son looked to be in, I don't know, his mid-20s maybe. So when Ken Jennings introduced me, the father leaned over and said, I thought I recognized you. Then he said to me, my name is Tom Brady. And I thought for a second he was putting me on, but he said, no. That's my name, and by the way, I had it long before he had it. This gentleman looked to be, I don't know, 60-ish, maybe 15-odd years older than that number 12 down in Tampa Bay. So the game began with his son as the middle contestant. In the two-time that Buffalo Tom Brady's son successfully rang in, and it's an art to, to ring in first, the son choked. He was not Brady-esque. He appeared to just go blank, had no answer, and quickly fell into red number deficit. So just to my left, with our elbows all but touching each other, I, I could just feel the rising tension in the parents. And when he failed with his answers, I could hear them groan. I, I was hurting for these two. It was just so embarrassing. Ernstine always says to me that I should do Celebrity Jeopardy because I went to Vanderbilt. And I always say, it's so different playing right here on the couch. I always tell her, I'd probably go deer in headlights on the show. Worse for me, I would be a 
prisoner of and a potential victim of the categories on Jeopardy. If, if you give me history, literature, geography, anything sports, obviously, I could be pretty good as long as I didn't choke and go blank. But you give me, I don't know, periodic tables or science or astrology or British royalty, I'm dead. So if I actually did do Celebrity Jeopardy, if you know me, I, I would need a month to study up on all those other categories and I would take the month to do just that. And obviously, 99.9% .9 of everything I studied and memorized, maybe 100% would be for not left on the cutting room floor because the odds are those things being in said categories that day would be long. Some nights I sit back on my couch and I look at all five of the categories as they pop up and I think, I got nothing. So, as this game we were watching escalated, Buffalo Tom Brady's son got a couple right. Then he missed a couple of more. Then he took one last shot to get out of the red at the end of double jeopardy, and he missed. No, please no. That meant he had to leave the set up there. You have to walk away from the set for final jeopardy because you were disqualified because you're in the red. Oh, the shame. I was devastated for his parents. I, I tried to say something nice. Hey, he gave it his best shot. I don't know what I said. It was awful what I said. Then Tom Brady, the Buffalo Tom Brady said back to me, the categories weren't the best for him. Do I ever hear that? Then at the end of the show, they said, hey, we got to go try to cheer him up. We bumped fist and they left. And I said, hey, at least you got the bills, which were coming up the next night for them to watch while they're visiting in LA. At that point, as we walked to our car, I decided to keep my day job doing Undisputed live. I had learned my lesson. I went straight home that evening. We turned on the Jeopardy that we had taped. And I very safely began to display my vast Jeopardy knowledge for Ernestine and Hazel, and that's where I belong. That's it for episode 45. Thanks to you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern. The Skip Bayless Show, every week.